In this week's episode, I'll be speaking with someone who did something that many of us thought to do when Trump was elected in 2016. They left. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And you know what got me started? What made sure my voice got out there? It was Anchor. And why did I choose Anchor to host my podcast? Well, easy. It was free. And they have all these amazing tools built right into the app. So it's really easy to get started and get your voice out there. And the best part, they make sure to distribute your podcast everywhere it needs to go. Like Apple, Google, Spotify, and so much more. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You're listening to The Authentic and Unfiltered Podcast with my mom, Farheen. Episode 22, Why I Left the USA. This week, my guest is fascinating. We came across each other online somewhere in one of these groups and posts that I had liked and you know how the rabbit hole goes. And when we got in touch and talked about you know, her outlook and everything she thinks, the conversation came up that she had actually left the USA after Trump got elected in 2016 because she had her reasons. And many might think that, wait, no, you don't leave. But she did. And in our conversation, we had a very in-depth and insightful discussion as to why she left, especially as someone who was born and raised here and grew up here and still has family here. So right before the election, take a listen as to what many of us did feel when Trump was elected, myself included. As always, do like and subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate any feedback you have for me. Follow me on Instagram at authentic.unfiltered. And the website is farheenraza.com where all the information is. This is all available in the show notes. And make sure to read the blog on my thoughts about this episode and what I took away from it. Again, all on farheenraza.com. Also, we now have a YouTube channel, so just look for Authentic and Unfiltered with Fraheen and you will see show highlights, video highlights that my producer Samana Sayed makes. And without further ado, take a listen. Today, my guest is Sofia Ali Khan. She is a Muslim activist, public interest lawyer, and mother of two. She's worked in the area of welfare rights, access to emergency, Medicaid for non-citizens, community economic development, housing and language access under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. She helped found and run the Philadelphia chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations from 2002 to 2008. She's now writing a book tentatively titled A Good Country, My Life in 13 Towns and the Ongoing Battle for a White America due out by Penguin Random House next year. She has lived with her husband and children outside of Toronto in Canada since 2017. Why Sophia is interesting is because she actually left the U.S. um, after the 2016 election. So that was something I know a lot of us were thinking and feeling. The thought that you actually did this. So I guess the obvious first question is, what were some of the factors that made you decide to leave the USA when Trump was about to be elected? So there were many. Um, in 20, actually, the rhetoric started early in 2015 because we have such a long mm-hmm. campaign period in the U.S., right? So all yes. of 2015 felt, this, felt like this buildup of anti-Muslim rhetoric. And um, it wasn't just Trump. It was Ted Cruz, you might remember, as well. Both of them were calling for it. And even um, Ben Carson was sort of jumping on the bandwagon a little bit. The only one who held back was Jeb Bush. He actually called it out. It was sort of a panel of Republican candidates that were talking about surveilling Muslims. Trump Mm -hmm. talked about registering us and issuing us IDs. Yes. Um, 
there was some discussion of closing masjids uh, yes. or mosques in the country. It was it was an incredibly escalated. Um, and, and when Jeb Bush actually spoke out against it, he mentioned internment, which I think was something that a lot of us were terrified about, mm -hmm. you know, because registration feels like just the step before internment. Yes. Um, yeah. So, but there was a lot of this sort of vitriolic anti-Muslim rhetoric. And it was, it was the kind of rhetoric that you really could not aim at any other ethnic, religious, or racial demographic in the country. Mm. None of that would have been acceptable if it had been aimed at any other demographic. And so, so my feeling, and I knew that because I had studied civil rights law, I had a special interest in social justice, I had sort of watched the evolution of um, both the law and the culture around equity in the country. But as a whole, I was really interested in that. And so to see Muslims take this enormous step back, even from where they were after 9-11, which was scary enough. Yeah. But it was almost a devolution from that. And the most important thing, I think, about the political stage was that it was the state. These weren't like... Um, the heads of an evangelical church somewhere or, you know, uh, right-wing neo-Nazi group or, you know, um, even my neighbor down the street. This was a presidential campaign. Exactly. And these were presidential candidates. And I thought, my God, if this is what they're not only willing, but able to espouse from the podium, in a presidential campaign, what does that mean for us? Mm. So that was going on. And then at the same time around the country, there was a spate of mosque burnings and vandalism yes. during that period. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was, there was one in Seattle, I think in early 2017, January, the same mosque then burned again in March. And yes. um, there, were, there were a couple of mosque burnings in Texas. And then there was one outside of Tampa and Florida Mm -hmm. So, so that was going on, you know, in a different news stream, school shootings were ramping up. So in, I think it was 2016, uh, you know, a six-year-old was shot and killed in a school shooting incident and I had a six-year-old. So it really hit home for me. So sort of taking all of this in, in my personal life then, my husband is British. So he was on a he had a, his permanent residency and we were just at that spot where he should naturalize. It was sort of on the table and my kids were born in the US. So we all wanted to have the same nationality and we were just getting ready to buy a house. We had moved back from uh, just outside of Chicago where we were living to be closer to my parents. We thought we were going to live the rest of our lives and retire on rocking chairs on the Delaware river in yeah. Bucks County, Pennsylvania. That was the big plan. Um, we lived just a few blocks away from my parents in a very layered community. So it's yeah. a community I grew up in. I had colleagues because I'd worked in Philadelphia for many years. I had childhood friends, family friends, extended family. So that was really home. And we had moved there two and a half, three years before the election. Okay. My kids were in love with my parents. We were not going anywhere. And in fact, we were going to transition. Dean was going to naturalize and we were going to buy a house. And then the election campaign started to ramp up and all of the 
components I mentioned earlier, the campaign rhetoric, the school shootings, the mosque burnings, they all sort of started to surge. In the context of that, I wrote a Facebook post called Dear Non-Muslim Allies. It went completely crazily viral. I wrote it one night after putting the kids to bed. My husband was out of town for work. And I wrote this two-page Facebook post that I thought nobody's going to read because millennials don't read two-page Facebook posts. <laughs> and, um, and it really went through, the first part of it went through how much fear there was, I thought, for most American Muslims. And it talked a little bit about how many of us were starting to think with the discussion around registration, what it means to be othered so deeply and to be the enemy in a society that we thought of as ours. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a, an old friend, a teacher, who was a German Jew. Mm -hmm. His name was Herbert Brun. He's a he was a composer at University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And during the time I knew him, I was the only Muslim in the cohort we were in, and he was probably in his mid-70s when I knew him. And he would always say to me, be sure that your passport is in order. And he escaped um, Germany, much to the chagrin of his family and friends, when he was about 15, 16, I think. And he left on his own for America, and the rest of his family died in the Holocaust. I don't know why he told me to be sure my passport was in order. I don't think he was telling anyone else that, but I think he could see the rising tide. Um, and that would have been pre 9-11, that would have been post Iran hostage crisis, but he was someone who, because of his personal experience, paid a lot of attention and he was very tuned to the subtlety. So when I wrote Dear Non-Muslim Allies, I said, you know, I feel increasingly like I need to look at what Herbert Brune was telling me. Um, and then it ended with a sort of list of how allies could help Muslims through what was a really scary time. And it went viral, went all over, um, online, in paper. It showed up in a lot of different places. And then um, I went on MSNBC, and I am, have no real media experience. <laughs> so here I am in this green room. I go on. I was expecting someone to sort of earnestly talk to me about Dear Non-Muslim Allies because that's what triggered the invitation to go on. And instead, what the commentator did was flashed an excerpt of a nameless, identityless, brown, presumably Muslim man yelling death to America. And that was what I was supposed to respond to. And I was so thrown off kilter. I don't think I responded to it very well at the time. I was totally unprepared. It was, this was mainstream American news and this was how I was being approached with an obvious racist stereotype that implied a sort of group guilt, right? Here, Sophia Ali Khan who lives in Bucks County in the Delaware Valley and has done civil rights law for the last 15 years, answer for this random guy on the other side of the world who's yelling death to America. It doesn't make any sense. It would be like taking, it would be like taking any individual person of any racial or religious group and saying, answer for the worst thing that some other person I associate with you has done, right? We don't do that to anybody. So this is all, this is my world in 2015, 2016. In the meantime, my daughter is very ill. 
So my husband and I are having these evenings where we're like, what's going on? Like, should we have a, a go bag? Should we be yeah. worried? Um, should we, what is a reasonable amount of concern to have here? I had been an activist and a lawyer my whole life. And it was like, okay, all this is happening. This is kind of like what an activist lives for. This is the fight. This is when it, the rubber hits the road, right? We're either going to move towards democracy as a whole and equality as a whole, or it's going to fall away. So I didn't even think about giving up that fight. And my thought, half of my brain was like, how do I work most efficiently for the public good, for my country that I love and my community that I love? Do I go back into working for care? Because as you mentioned in the intro, I had helped found care in Philadelphia. I had a lot of connections in that community. Okay. Do I go to the border? You know, <laughs> do I, what do I do, right? And, or do I run for public office, right? Because here I am in this purple county that often tips elections one way or another. So it, it felt sort of perfect to be positioned there. I thought about running for local office. But then I had this sick kid. We couldn't get her a diagnosis. We had been to 20 specialists. In the end, I had to make a decision about whether I was going to be a mom first, an activist first. And in the end, I, you know, we had, we decided to sort of knock on the door of Canada. So explore whether we could transition work and, you know, where we would be. We did a bunch of interviews with friends and family up here. Uh, every door opened. So I had conversations with friends and family at the time about what a big move that was and how it wasn't tenable for everyone. And I realized that it's not a tenable, yeah. but for us, and so, um, so we made a decision that we were all going to move to Canada and doors are open. Do we want to walk through them? And so it's so fascinating because I think people will listen to your um, experience and and like, I was nodding. I was like, I remember that. Yes, I remember this. I remember when all these mosques were being burned. I remember the school shooting. I mean, it still happens. Thank goodness, not as much. Hopefully it stays that way. But it, it does trigger. And it, it's almost like a pseudo PTSD. Where yeah. kind of thinking about it, I'm going back to 2016. I'm like, oh man, that night. How do you feel when you see all of this as someone who is American? Well, I'll tell you, we often, my husband and I often look at each other and say, I'm really glad we're here and not there. Just because of baseline anxiety, there are two pieces. One is that, you know, if you look at just, just in general, the baseline anxiety of a, of a society in which there's high quality public education and high quality healthcare for everyone. Yeah. The baseline anxiety is lower. It just is. You walk into the, to like a drugstore or gas station and you know that person across the counter from you has health care. They need something they're going to be taken care of, you know. Um, there's something that having a robust social safety net does to a society to reduce the baseline anxiety and to create a sense of equity, right? You don't get that same sense of desperation that you do. And I've, I say that as someone who has worked in deeply impoverished parts of our country, um, both in Illinois and in Pennsylvania um, and in Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, so I've seen, I've seen quite a spread of what poor America looks like. And that level of desperation, you just, it's not the same. So then um, when your family and friends, when you guys made this decision, when you were still in the US, 
did anyone in your family or friends try to dis dissuade you? Like, why are you going? Yeah, no. Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> everyone. Don't leave. Don't leave. <laughs> Absolutely everyone. Nobody was like, yes. You know what? My best friend who lives in the middle of Tennessee, yeah. rural, very Trump, very red country. Yeah. Um, she said you should go. <laughs> because she heard every day the vitriol, even at her church, you know, the oh, sort wow. of anti-Muslim rhetoric. And she was like, you know, um, in the Northeast, I mean, I'm sure, you know, in Boston, the racism is often coded or it's often softened. There's yeah. often an idea about sort of social graces. But where she is, you know, nobody really knows a Muslim. So there's no need to be soft about your vitriol. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, she was hearing it uncut and she was like, I don't, you have to leave. You need to leave. <laughs> everyone else was like, please stay. Don't go. Everyone else. <laughs> my, my former colleagues, my friends in Philadelphia were like, just come to Philadelphia. It's a liberal bastion. You're just feeling this way because you're in the suburbs and they're yeah. diverse. And, um, and you know, now Trump just called out during the presidential debates, Trump just called Philadelphia as a place where bad things happen, you know, yeah. and then an anarchist zone, I guess he's calling some of these. Yeah. Antifa stronghold and all these things. And it's like, again, it's just blind arrows. It's like, okay, where's the right. proof? There's no proof, but okay. Right. That's what, that's so how I think. You sort of wonder, and, and with a, with a, president that's so punitive that's willing to sort of withhold funding emergency funding mm -hmm. and federal support from progressive cities you wonder if any place is safe you know true um, true true definitely because, yeah i mean i'm sure if you talk to you know um the governor of california right now he'd say the same that it's you know trying to function without the support of the federal government and then do you ever regret it leaving the U.S. and does your family regret? Like, do they, like your parents, do they ever say like, we know why you did this and it's good for you, but we really wish you hadn't? Or do they say- so like, it's oh, no. Actually, most of them have gone the other way. Really? Almost everybody has gone the other way and said, aren't you glad that you left when you did? And, um, and for a couple of different reasons, my parents and my immediate family or immediate extended family, you know how it is. Um, they all see how well my daughter is doing. Hmm. She's virtually illness free now. She didn't have any symptoms and she was sick for four years before we left. That's no, two years before we left and two years she was recovering. And as parents, you know, as a mom, you say, Alhamdulillah, whatever it took to get my child well, that was the right decision. Yeah. So it's impossible to feel regret from my perspective as her mom, um, but we miss, we miss family every day. I miss having those layers of community. Mm. Um, I say this in the book that I'm writing that I felt a little extra American. I mean, I lived, I lived in New England, in Boston actually. Nice. So, shout out to Boston. I lived in the Mid-Atlantic in Bucks County for many years. I lived in South Florida. I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. I spent a bunch of time in Manassas, Virginia. I lived in um, outside of Chicago in Illinois. I've traveled in South Dakota and Arizona and spent time there. So I've seen and worked and lived in a lot of America. 
And then I did social justice work in almost all of those places. And then trained as a lawyer and did public interest law work. So was working with people deeply in on the policy issues that were important to them. And those were, these were not your typical folks that seek out a lawyer. These were low income folks. These were nonprofit organizations. So I was talking to ordinary people all over the country. And so I didn't feel like I was American sort of accidentally or by virtue of where I happened to have been born. Mm -hmm. I really take being American very seriously. I wasn't like, you know, my parents happened to move here. And so like, I, I really felt invested in my Americanness. And I mean, something happened to me in college where I fell really deeply in love with American folk history and civil rights history. And I really believed in what I was working towards and for, um, because I grew up in the eighties going back and forth to Southern Pakistan and seeing the political chaos there. There was a lot of sectarian violence in those years. And I recognized that there was a baseline sort of post-colonial disruption that created that chaos, but I knew that that was not the environment that I wanted to raise children in. So I had no choice but to invest fully from my perspective in my new home. And it broke my heart to leave. So in spite of the fact that I can't have any regrets as a mom, I yearn for the Delaware Valley. It's my home, you know, like I miss the leaves and I miss the river and I miss the, the old beautiful field stone farmhouses. Um, But one of the things the book writing the book has helped me see is that America has a great deal of reckoning to do that. Those field stone farmhouses were built on land that was not, and that was taken um, unjustly. And that until America really reckons with that past, with its, with the genocide of indigenous peoples and, and this stolen labor of mm-hmm. hundreds of years of enslavement of African people, we will, this sort of Trumpian era is the karmic sort of fallout of that. And moving to Canada, yeah, moving to Canada has really taught me a lot about that because Canada is much more open, imperfectly, absolutely. And there's a long way to go here. They're both settler colonial societies, but in Canada, you hear a discussion, an earnest discussion of reparations and indigenous rights mm-hmm. and, um, and ancestral land um, and residential schools and the atrocities that, you know, um, and there's a confrontation. And, and again, this is about what the state does, right? So just like, it was important that the state was talking about IDing Muslims and surveilling Muslims. Here, it's very important that the state is putting money into really understanding what happened to Canadian Canada's Indigenous peoples. Um, and I, I hope that that's what's in the future for America. I hope we we can all hope 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 is something. And I have a very tough question for you. So apologies <laughs> if it sounds very offensive. But do you ever feel or has anyone called you out and said that you're a turncoat or a traitor of sorts 
for leaving because isn't the idea that you know this is your country if, if this is my country i should stay here and protect it and fight for it on the ground i know you mentioned the part that you know as a mom and for healthcare putting that aside have you ever gotten this negative thought attached to you that you left so why are you complaining you know, honestly crossed my mind that because i'm very very vocal on social media platforms because in part i'm writing this book i'm very invested in the in current events and the in particular the racial politics of the united states yeah. um so i comment on those things a lot um publicly or publish things about those things um i it it's i would be lying if i said it didn't cross my mind that i'm out here commenting from like the stadium seats right yeah. <laughs> on what's going on down there but again i'll just go back to this sort of sense of being extra american it wasn't that i was an armchair american it wasn't you know um i really considered myself a public servant from the time i turned 16 and started volunteering on a suicide hotline you know like that was and is how i see myself as someone who has a civic duty and takes it really seriously. So I I really feel like I was was an am a citizen in the deepest sense of the word. Um even when I was suing the government I felt like it was out of a sense of civic duty, right? Um and so I feel like boy wouldn't it be a relief to live a life without that sense of responsibility, without the sense that I had to pay attention <laughs> or without the sense that I needed to go work um in in areas and areas of the law where you know i was confronting deep poverty and violence and and there's a lot of pain in that work but i felt yeah. like that was my calling that was my role and i felt like those were my people hmm. that america could only be as good as as good as the life it made for its most vulnerable citizens i really believe that sure. and so i made it my job to make the lives of its most vulnerable citizens better and i didn't do that because i had some sort of martyr complex i just i felt like that's what citizenship required of me yeah um, and i felt honestly that the society had given a lot to my family and i wanted to give something back i wanted to understand America is my home. And I spent so much investing in that and I take it so seriously. I know I'm this very earnest kind of goofy person, but I took it really seriously. And so I kind of feel like the only payback I want from that is being able to have my say, being able to say when there's a trespass that is unacceptable. When when America then says get out or <laughs> or you need to be surveilled or your house of worship needs to be closed down um i feel like that's where that's where you draw the line of personal protection and you say i i'm going to do what i need to do to fight that um without putting myself and my children at risk you know wow i know you seem content in canada are you truly content or would you and the way you describe how you used to do all these amazing things as a you know lawyer and you know suing the government as well do you ever uh, sometimes wish that you can come back or would you ever come back 
and uh, try to make change. I'm always on realtor.com looking at real estate in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Always, always. It's like my, it's like my, you know, my version of Netflix and chill is looking at real estate in Bucks County. Real estate, that's, you know, <laughs> the place you want to live. And then would you ever come back? Like would, would something, let's say if the next election, which is upon us and things change and maybe not immediately change, but let's say in the next year or so or two years, or maybe it might take three years. I, I think the next president, if it is, is not Trump. If it is Biden, it's just a year, four years, of course, correcting. Honestly, I don't think it doesn't mean big changes, but would you ever in the future be like, you know what? I think it's time to move back to Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So I'm going to answer that in two parts. The first part is the personal part. And personally, um, one of the great benefits of having moved around a lot is that I I kind of lay this claim to understanding America in in maybe maybe, um, a deeper way than someone who's who's familiar only with one region of it. But the downside of it is I'm done moving. Like I can't pick up all my stuff and move again. And I think my kids are done moving. So, you know, is it impossible that we would eventually move back to be near the grandparents or the extended family? No, it's not impossible, but it's, it feels unlikely. Trump is his own something, right? He is this crazy he is something. In this political moment. <laughs> but he's also the culmination of 500 years exactly. of us in America, living on this paper-thin narrative that our ideals are equality and freedom and justice, but let's not talk about slavery. Let's not talk about indigenous people. Let's not talk about farm workers. Let's not talk about all the undocumented workers that we rely on as day labor in our factories. And my sense is that if you have, for example, 200 years or 300 years of enslaved labor building the infrastructure of your country, there's a reckoning for that. There's a repayment for that, that you should anticipate taking two to 300 years. Wow. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it doesn't take, you can't do diversity training after 300 years and say, you know, just like, just like we can't reach back across 200 years of British colonialism yeah. and remember what it was like before then, it's very hard to reconstitute or repair what's taken over hundreds of years of brutality. And so this idea that we've had that liberal democracy, yeah. like some affirmative action for 20 years, a little diversity training, um, and some scholarships for indigenous folks, that's going to take care of it. And the reality is that we're not even producing the history books yet that would require us to begin to know what happened, forget, repair it. And so you get this incredible political pushback to things like affirmative action and diversity training and reparations or forget that. And it's because we have a collective amnesia about the wealth that came out of taking, we literally took you know, hundreds of people's land away from them, put them, corralled them in tiny slivers of non-arable land, and then chopped up that land and sold it to more immigrants from Europe. And now, of course, from all over the world. And that is how America is constituted. So my feeling is that 
as I wrote the book and I started to think about, well, where did this come from, this anti-Muslim, this acceptance of this anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant sentiment? Why does America take so readily to it? And as I started to explore, I found that in every place I lived, because what the book does is it goes chapter by chapter in every place yeah. I lived. And it talks a little bit about my story there, and it usually involves me clumsily tripping over a color line that I don't realize is there. Because you can see my face. I look pale. So some places I pass, some places I don't. Yeah. People think I'm different things depending on where I am. And then it tells the backstory of how that particular color line got drawn there. Wow. Not the whole backstory, but some of it. And by the end, you start to really understand, or I started to really understand, that this reactivity of pushing brown and black people to the margins of forced relocation, of forcing us into very specific marginal economies and specific marginal land, that is what the American way is. Our landscape is defined by it. Yeah. No, and then I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this book because mm -hmm. you had told me about this book when we had our initial phone call. And mm -hmm. just the way you're describing it on the phone call, I was like, this is so fascinating because we, we really, and you're right, we have this, the, the word collective amnesia is so spot on that we seem to forget and we only talk about the best. And I think not just America, any, even like, uh, like my family in Pakistan, when they talk about Pakistan, they're like, oh, it's the best country ever. And I'm here in a different country saying, well, y'all got a lot of problems too. And I'm sure they see that for us. And likewise, everyone says that for anyone else. But um, I think in the U.S., definitely, especially since living in the South, I am seeing a very, sometimes I wonder if I'm still in the same America I grew up in, because mm -hmm. the Northeast is very different from the South both pros and cons. So I won't say like, oh, that was better. This is better. But you do kind of have to come to terms and to face with, um, for example, Martin Luther King Day up Northeast is celebrated very normally, very common. It's a very basic holiday. Over here, there are ISDs that choose to give the day off, the others that choose not to give the day off, which to mm -hmm. me is like, but I thought it's supposed to be a federal holiday, isn't it? Off for everyone. And they're like, no, we get to decide. That's why we're an independent school district and not this run and that run. And over here, um, down south, I see a lot more um, Christianity in the schools. Whereas growing up in Boston, you didn't, religion was kept out of schools because like, well, everyone could be whatever or nothing or something and it's their own choice. But here it's, it's very common to walk into a, a classroom, a public school classroom, not even a private school, public school and see like signs like Jesus loves you. And it's like, okay, good. I mean, in, in Islam, we also believe in Prophet, um, you know, Isa or Jesus, but it's just like, it's kind of like, oh, well, if I put there like Prophet Muhammad loves you too, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of pushback from 10 different places. But this book, so you're writing this book and can you tell us about, I mean, I know you said the tentative title is, you know, A Good Country, My Life in 13 Towns and the Ongoing Battle for a White America. And so the title could change at this point, but this is what the gist of the book is. Can you tell us about it? So it's, uh, it's expected to come out by Penguin Random House is the publisher in okay. um, late next year. Originally it was early next year, but then the pandemic hit. So there've been a little, uh, there've been a few um, adjustments there. Okay. Um, and it really is, it's sort of a deep dive. On the surface, it's, it's sort of the story of how we made our decision to leave, but it's really a deep dive into 
how I came to that as a human being, right? So I've been in all these places and there's a depth of understanding of America that comes from that, that was employed when I sat down and said, can I leave my home, right? Mm. Um, but I didn't know all of the local histories of the places I've been. I include some places that I was only in for a month or several months. And then I include places I was for six years and are, in so many places in America, um, the culture that binds us together has very little to do with the local ecology. It's, you know, the Walmart and the grocery store and the, the sort of modernity, the infrastructure of modernity that we live contained in. And often, even the historical markers that do exist are buried in that landscape. Mm -hmm. They're not visible. And if we do come across them, we have no context in which to put them. And um, having been educated in American public schools, often the stories we are told are very sanitized. So I grew up with an almost fairy tale version of William Penn and the Quakers and how peace loving they were. Yeah. And I grew up with no alternative viewpoints that said, well, maybe we should ask the Lenape who were displaced, grossly displaced by um, the, those Quaker settlers and how Quakerism sort of fell away from the majority of those settlers in the years that followed and how they were subjected to gross violence and, you know, sexualized violence. And, um, and they're, in this case, um, you know, they had a very different relationship to land. So to lose land was to lose, you know, thousands of years worth of stored information about how to live, mm. how to sustain oneself from the land. Yeah. And to displace someone who has that kind of information to another piece of land, in, in the modern world, it's like, well, if I can put a house there and build a shopping center, I'll be fine. But that's not how indigeneity works. If you're from a place, if you're from a place for thousands of years, um, especially in a pre-modern context, yeah. there's a, a store of information and knowledge and awareness that has to do with the plants and the, the animals and the land and the water sources and the, the um, mineral resources that are there. And so what we decimated, what settlers decimated when they came is a vast trove. You know, it's, it's as if thousands of libraries were burned to the ground. Yeah. And so, um, so as I dug and as I sort of understood that in a way that I hadn't really before, um, I began to write these, these histories. And some of, them are, some of them are as early as first contact, but some of them are, you know, how did Little Rock get to be so segregated? Where did that highway that runs straight through the city come from? Um, how, how was it built that way right after Central High was desegregated? I mean, we all know the story of Central High and how it was desegregated, right? But we, no one tells the story of how then, after this great civil rights victory and the desegregation of that school, how a highway was built through the town that resegregated society. Yeah. Um, and it's so implanted on the landscape that now it's no longer a question of schools. It's a question of 
you know, of the actual landscape, demarking, demarcating black and white. Yeah. And in every town, that story is different. And so I go from modern to some, I go from examples that are further back in history and nearer in history, and sometimes contemporary in telling the ways in which we are a deeply and intentionally segregated society mm-hmm. with, um, with constant sort of encouragement to other each other and to, to um, press brown and black people to the margins. And, um, and so I think the book really had me arrive at a better understanding of who I was in my own country and um, and how very much work there is between um, between us and our stated ideals, um, between Americans and their stated ideals. Um, a collective of a true history, or mm-hmm. the part of history that we've kind of conveniently forgotten, or chosen yeah. chose to put aside that this. You know, we, and like you said, the modernization, everything, put a Walmart there, it destroys like 15 different types of things as it comes. And that's such a fascinating, and then how, and you said that basically that this book will tell all these small histories, like early histories to more recent history. And then how that culminated into your decision that, you know what, I'm going to take an exit for now. And I felt like it landed with a much more realistic understanding of what it will take to get there. And so I was able to assess that in a Trumpian era, even the first, even the preliminary steps towards that better America were not possible. And so, and I think a more realistic understanding of, of how very much lies between us and, and that final goal. And it's not that I give up, it's just that my ideas about the tactics that should be employed are very different now. Um, I'm much more sort of, you know, I'll give an example. In Canada, there was, um, there was a recent um, sort of, um, confrontation where an indigenous woman was uh, responding to some efforts by Prime Minister Trudeau to make reparations from some, for some specific trespass. And in the press conference that was being held, a white news reporter said to the indigenous woman, in, in, a, you know, in a mildly sort of, um, in sort of mild disbelief, are you saying that what Prime Minister Trudeau did is not helpful? I mean, look at what Harper did. Harper was a much more conservative prime minister who did some pretty egregious stuff. Um, And the indigenous woman responded in a way that I think initially I found hard to understand. She said, she said, listen to how you're talking white woman. Listen to how you're talking to me, how dare you speak to us that way? Um, And your colonized way of thinking means that essentially this conversation is meaningless. It's over. And she walked away. And I thought like, what is that? Like what, why? You know, because in sort of 
conventional American and Canadian mindsets where we're sort of taught to believe that our governments are being generous with people of color when they provide any sort of reparation or acknowledgement. And what I heard in her was a retaking of a different mindset that says that colonialism was a bad act that people knowingly perpetrated and that that land is still still stolen. Those resources are still stolen. So when you offer to give a pittance back, it is a pittance and it's only from a colonial mindset that you see it as generous, right? And, uh, and it was really, I think that shift in mindset is a sort of permission that not even all African-American and indigenous people give themselves. And I think it's even more complicated <laughs> in some ways for recent immigrants who are brown yeah. or are themselves settlers to reckon with. Like, what does it mean that Pakistan is a post-colonial state and our parents fled often for economic reasons, but sometimes for political reasons. Um, But then we've become the settlers, the colonizers in a different place. What does that mean? What are our responsibilities? I think, you know, those questions were some that I had never really reckoned with before I started the book. I think most people don't even think about those things. Right now it's like, yeah, you're right. We, I think a lot of us have to look very deep inside ourselves and see what, like you said, what does it mean to be truly an American? And does that mean that I'm feeding into this ideology that am I siding with the colonists or am I siding with the indigenous? It's, it's, it's a very fascinating thought process to go through. One of the else. things that I'm really struck by is that in Canadian public education, Instead of struggling to answer that question, what they do is they start by simply telling the story. Wow. And if you think about it, by contrast, in America, we don't even tell the story yet. No. With this pandemic, being that a lot of us have more time on our hands and we're able to focus on things we never really thought about, I think your book is relevant and very much needed because we do have this time. And I don't think this pandemic is going anywhere even January, February, summer next year. I don't think it's going anywhere. My husband's a physician. He's like, numbers are going up again. Steadily, they're going back up. And even countries, other countries, which had no cases are getting- They're coming back up here. They're coming back. Oh, they're coming back in Canada as well. I know in Boston, they had really good control. And my parents are like, no, we're in red zone again. So it's, it's, this is a way of life. And I think with this time that we've all gained, the focus on Black Lives Matter, the, the focus on different movements that deserved the attention years ago, but just weren't able to kind of get it in a, in a bigger way. Now, a lot more people are aware that there is, especially with um, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, there is systematic racism. There is a problem. Breonna Taylor's, uh, you know, her killer's acquittal. There is a problem. So now I think people are very, very, and not all people, but a good chunk of people that I've talked to recently are more aware they're like we never thought about this way I've had people from Pakistan India tell me that I never thought how Black Lives Matter actually means a lot to me because I'm technically not white I am brown or Asian or something else so it does matter if if those people have been struggling for 500 plus years 
and the startings of something against my community are just beginning. If I don't stop this now, it's going to be like in a thousand years, my great, great, great grandchild will be fighting the same battle we're fighting today. So yeah. I, I'm really looking forward to your book. And I think it's much needed. And we, we, we need to know our history. What a conversation. Isn't that something else? It was really nice to talk to Sophia and just get her viewpoints, her reasons, because it is a very multifaceted reason why someone would leave a country. And don't we hear of that all over the world where people are leaving countries because they don't feel welcome anymore? So whatever you decide on election day, do know it does matter and affects many of us. I can only hope for the best on election day. And that's why this episode came out early, because I want you to listen to what many of us Muslims feel all the time. Again, like and subscribe to the podcast. The website is frahinraza.com. And make sure to also follow us on YouTube. There is show highlights available on YouTube about the episode. Until next time, everyone, be good, be safe, and take care. Make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. You can also follow and message mom on Instagram at authentic.unfiltered. For all links and details, go to farheenraza.com. <laughs>